Hoff. I'm better known as Kidney Boy, and I'm going to be hosting this week's episode of Freely Filtered, an FJC podcast. The way we look at Freely Filtered is it's the director's DVD commentary for the previous week's NFJC. And we're just going to talk about each one of these uh, NFJC chats, and we're going to kind of summarize and uh, make it available in a different medium. Uh, we've got a great team. Uh, today, we're going to be with uh, Matt Sparks. Hey, this is Matt Sparks. I am a physician scientist and nephrologist from Duke University. Swap. I'm Swapnil Harmat. Uh, I go by Swap and tweet as H Swapnil. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist from the University of Ottawa. And Jenny? I am Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist at Northwestern University, also known as the Daria of Nephrology. Outstanding. So we were going to start with uh, Ascend. Okay, Jenny, why don't you hit it? All right. So depression is a common mental health condition seen in 25 to 39 percent of hemodialysis patients. And this was actually, we got these numbers from a meta-analysis published in Kidney International in 2013. Now, Depression is important to address and treat because it can affect how someone functions at work and how they function in a social setting. And this is in a general population. So now imagine adding the challenge of having three times a week dialysis added to the mix and how that might impact quality of life of the patient and whether or not that patient feels motivated even to go to dialysis. So it's definitely a big quality of life issue and with potential impact on health. So when you get to the point of needing dialysis, you're doing more than just sitting in a chair for several hours three times a week. There are other changes to your lifestyle like dietary restrictions, increased pill burden, and these are things that, you know, if you have depression or develop depression can be very challenging. So as you can imagine, figuring out how to treat depression in the hemodialysis population is quite important for that patient's health and quality of life. Now, nephrology has had a couple of negative trials for sertraline in non-dialysis CKD and the dialysis population. And to make more things more complicated, pharmacotherapy with antidepressants such as sertraline may exert other cardiovascular side effects. Um, this is even more so in other SSRIs that might have a QT prolonging effect. Effect. But then the question comes up, can we also treat depression with cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT? And this kind of sets us up for the premise of the ASCEND trial. One of the things that I think is uh, interesting about uh, depression is that many of the symptoms of depression overlap with the symptoms of uremia. And I think this is this is problematic, especially when you look at this very high rate of depression in dialysis patients. And you always kind of wonder, wow, are people answering the symptom of fatigue because they're having depression or are they answering the question of fatigue because they're uremic? Uh, same thing with loss of appetite. Distur- sleep disturbances are common in uremia. It's difficult because, you know, when you are in the dialysis unit and people have these complaints, you're going to think, wow, is this, is this depression that I need to be focused on that? Or am I under dialyzing this patient or am I missing some other aspect of that? Uh, Especially when you see that uh, uh, depression is associated with uh, missed dialysis. That's one of the associations that they find patients that are depressed are missing dialysis. And so... You know, it, it you get these symptoms, and you're like, "What what do I do with this? You know, what what am I dealing with? Am I actually dealing with depression, or am I dealing with uh, uh, someone who's getting underdialyzed?" Totally agree with that. And the the scores actually have a lot of components that you talk about here. 
as Jenny was saying, these drugs are not innocuous and some of them have cardiovascular side effects. And there was actually a recent analysis in uh, C. Jason that looked at the USRDS prescribing data and looked at uh, antidepressants and categorized them as drugs that had lower QT prolonging potential and greater prolonging. Uh, QT prolonging potential. The ones that had lower QT prolonging potential were fluoxetine, fluvoxamine, paroxetine, and sertraline. The ones that had prolonged QT or higher QT prolonging potential were citalopram and S. Oh my God, I can't. What is that? Citalopram. 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 It's the S isomer, yeah. And they looked at they looked at risk of sudden death, and it was almost a twenty percent higher risk of sudden cardiac death in the ones that had higher QT prolonging uh, potential. And they also had a higher risk of uh, heart failure, a uh, higher risk of sudden cardiac death in women, which was interesting. And it was especially effective if uh, they were on multiple QT prolonging drugs. So you know, you know again. Depression is a horrible situation. We want to treat it. We want to reach out and help our patients, but these are not innocuous drugs and we need to be careful with that. Swap, you were going to talk about the methods? The ASCENT trial, and ASCENT stands for a trial of sertraline versus cognitive behavioral therapy for end-stage renal disease patients with depression. I guess the trial was designed a few years ago, so they still had renal, considering that uh, the PI is the editor-in-chief of CJs, and where if you say ESRD, it gets scratched out and comes back to US ESKD. We all agree with that. We all agree with that. Um, so the trial was funded by PICORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Um, that was created out of uh, the funding created, uh, I think, from the Affordable Care Act uh, or something like that about seven or eight years ago, with the main purpose of doing comparative effectiveness research, which this is a perfect example. The trial itself was an open label, which makes sense given the intervention, parallel group multicenter RCT. Uh, the multiple centers were basically a bunch of dialysis uh, units over three major sites. That's New Mexico, uh, Seattle, Washington, and Dallas, Texas. Uh, 41 dialysis facilities at these three clinical sites. And they um, used and they used multiple uh, dialysis providers. It wasn't just a Fresenius or a DeVita. I think there were six different providers is what they that's said. That's right. There were six different dialysis providers, 41 different dialysis facilities. Um, so those things were different, but the... Uh, therapists where you know provide continuity and we'll get to that so if we look at the study population it was uh, there are detailed study criteria but I, for our purposes uh, patients had to be on dialysis for more than three months and depression was defined on the basis of the Beck depression inventory score with a score of 15 or higher uh, who were approached for inclusion in this study at the same time they did exclude anyone with severe depression so someone who was already on potent antidepressive medications though were those who were theme uh, were thought to be at high risk of you know suicidal intent where inclusion in a trial would not have uh, equipoise so those were excluded so low risk and high risk were excluded you had the middle chunk which makes absolute sense but since we are on the scores it, it's I guess it's slightly useful to look at the scores in a little bit of detail and uh, I think it'll be useful to provide the links to these scores on our show notes. So for the inclusion, they use the Beck Depression Inventory Score, which goes uh, from, there are 21 set of questions, which go from 0 to 3. So the scale goes from 0 to 63. And the uh, if you look at the scores, uh, the questions are sort of, uh, you know, sleep, fatigue, um, uh, how tired do you feel? It's those kind of questions. So... Um, you know, I'm not particularly discouraged about the future. I Do I feel disappointed about myself? Do I feel guilty? Uh, it's easy to score um, and it 
sort of may has intuitive uh, value uh, as far as uh, inclusion is concerned. So that's the study population. Uh, when you come to the study design, uh, it had two phases. And I was trying to understand why they would do the two phases. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, I thought the best way to think about it is the phase one was sort of like a run-in because not all patients who are identified would necessarily be willing to accept the diagnosis. It's not easy. You know, I find it difficult to talk about depression with my patients. Uh, so this sort of running period helped phase in the main part of the study, which was the phase two. And in the phase one, patients were randomized to, participants were randomized to an engagement interview or control. In the engagement interview, they had uh, an interview with one of the therapists who was actually going to do the CBT later on. Uh, and they sat down, they had uh, interviews about how they felt about being diagnosed with depression. They got a DVD. Uh, so they went through those interviews. And in the control phase, all they got was that they met with the member of the research team. I guess this was to see that these participants not only agreed, but they would carry out with the interventions that were coming in phase two. It was interesting. The um, intervention in this phase one was 50 minutes long, but the control was 30 minutes long. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, it was the last time if I spent 30 minutes talking about mental health with a patient, like that doesn't feel like a control experience at all. Like that sounds like a pretty intensive intervention, you know. Right. And uh, it was a member of the research team. So I guess they were talking about the study and the fact that, you know, what it means to have depression. Um, so a lot of attention was paid to these participants. And this was uh, randomized. And those who completed that those interviews, the engagement interview or the control interviews, they were then invited to participate in phase two, which was cognitive behavioral therapy versus the drug. Uh, so not, and again, they were re-randomized. So it wasn't that, you know, someone who was in the engagement interview had to be in the CBT, they could go anywhere. Um, so in the phase two, the two interventions were individual CBT sessions or the drug. The individual CBT sessions were with the therapist. So they got the same therapist for all the sessions that they received. And, in, and they had 10 sessions of about 60 minutes each over 12 weeks. During, and, and yes, this was during their outpatient dialysis session. So it was approximately just under one session a week. Um, and the sessions actually in the supplement, they talk about what happened. And uh, the sessions were pretty well, they were progressive. So it wasn't that they were just talking about one thing. And there was a certain agenda during the first session and a different one in the second and third. And they were tailored for, you know, issues that people would face on dialysis. Uh, in the uh, sertraline arm, they started off with uh, 20, uh, 25 milligrams of sertraline and the doses were titrated up to the maximum tolerated dose with the name of reaching 200 milligrams of sertraline. In both groups, in addition to that, they, the participants completed the quids SR score. So that's the, it's another depression score, but it's self-reported. Uh, and it was completed on both arms. So in the, um, in the CBT group, they uh, did the quids SR every uh, two weeks for the first six weeks and every three weeks for the next six weeks. So if you look at the self-reported quids SR, you know, they're going through those questions. They're thinking about themselves. So I guess it's giving people greater, you know, even if I complete that score, you know, I'm going to think about what's happening. How is my mood? Why am I doing things like that? Uh, so you you think that's part of the intervention is yeah, filling I think out this it, form. They don't say it as an intervention, but I think it's sort of an intervention uh, because they're completing it, not, completing it not once, but every two weeks. Repeating the same question over and over again. How does that affect the result? I, I recently took a well-being course and they were sending me a survey once a month, same questions every month. And at one point, I just wanted to click it and get it over with. Does that have any bearing in these sort of studies? That's 
that's an excellent point right maybe they got better at scoring themselves and moving on uh, but, but then i could counter that uh, for the outcome it was the clinician rating as joel pointed out uh, right but but you know they were i guess they were examining their depression and maybe they were thinking how is the cbt working or something along those lines the one thing also to note about the cbt raj mahotra came on twitter on the asia chat and basically said that they were offered to do cbt either in their dialysis chair or at home or they could go to a separate room and an overwhelming majority of the participants chose to do it on during dialysis actually makes it very viable to do this even though they were right next to other people they still chose to do it in the dialysis facility yeah and there was a lot of difference of opinion right i think the um, european participants uh, and there were a couple of patients who joined the chat um, electra you know tess harris and fiona i think they were saying hey uh, you know i'm not sure i would want to talk about my mental health in in a busy dialysis unit um i i totally agreed with that when we were during the chat and i felt like you know you know i take the time and go to a room but um, from from the trial and looking at it in the real world scenario at least in the us a lot of people were okay with doing that although they did have the choice and i think that's the important aspect is to give them the choice to do mm-hmm. that um mm-hmm. the other thing that was interesting that i just wasn't as aware of, of like who is capable of doing Cognitive behavioral therapy, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, the people that round in a dialysis, you know, on a regular basis, but they do it. Uh, social workers can do this. Is that correct? Joel? That's what I'm told. That's exactly. During the right. chat, uh, Terry Brown came on, who's a social worker. That's right. And she very specifically said that almost all the social workers, it's close to 100% according to her, are trained to give CBT. And it looks like it has low side effects too. So, Quids SR, the self-reported scale was done by the patients, but for the outcomes, they did the Quids C, which is the um, the same scale, a similar scale, but rated by the clinician, which was done at baseline six weeks and twelve weeks. And for the outcome, the primary outcome, they looked for a change in the Quids C score scale between the um, CBT and the sertraline arm. So the study, you know, coming to the analysis in brief, uh, because it was pretty straightforward, they were looking for a difference, a uh, superiority between the sertraline and CBT. Um, and they looked for a difference of uh, about, so roughly four points on the Quids C score with a standard deviation of one. And for the power analysis, they thought, you know, 400 would enter the phase one and, uh, you know, uh, about 180 patients would enter the phase two. It ended up that A, recruitment into phase one was slow and B, uh, the loss to follow-up was actually not bad. They thought, you know, they would have 15% uh, loss to follow-up, but patients in dialysis are not going anywhere. So they had about 5 to 10% loss to follow-up. Um, they said it's okay to go with the 120 uh, patients that they ended up. Uh, and with that, they would have a power of about 4 to 5 to show a difference of about 4 to 5 in the quid C scale. Excellent. Uh, results. The phase one, looking at engagement, whether they could do this interview and get people to pursue or accept treatment for depression, there was no difference. But it seemed like both interventions were very good. They had uh, two-thirds of both groups uh, accepting treatment for depression within 28 days. We already talked about how even the control group had half an hour of discussion about um, about mental health and about the study. And so it was a pretty intensive control group. And then the intervention group also had this 20-minute video. Just didn't result in much of a difference. But again, I was pretty impressed. Two-thirds seeking treatment within 28 days seemed pretty good. The second half of the trial looked at uh, 
how effective these two therapies were, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy versus sertraline. They, as uh, Swapnil was saying, they had really good retention. They had uh, 78% of patients were on study drug at the end of the study. Uh, 73% of the patients received all 10 sessions of CBT with 80% receiving eight sessions. So 80% received 80% of the sessions. So they did the uh, Q, the quids C score and with CBT, it went from 12.2 down to 8.1. Uh, sertraline, it started at 10.9 and it went down to 5.9. And that 5.9, that's an average. It's interesting because if you're less than five on the C quids, uh, you don't even you don't even qualify as depression. That's a full uh, remission. Then and there was actually a significantly lower score with sertraline p-value 0.035, but the difference was only 1.84. And the authors pointed out they did not think that was a significant, a clinically significant difference between the two scores. Though statistically it was significant. Uh, they had looked at the data a couple different ways. They looked at a 50% reduction of that quid C score. Um, and that, that 50% reduction was achieved in 36% of people on cognitive behavioral therapy and 43% of patients with the sertraline. That was non-significant. And then they were looking for clinical remission. So that's a score less than five. That happened in 29% of patients on CBT versus 40% of patients on sertraline. And again, that was not significant. One of the other things is there were 20 patients that they enrolled in an observation group that did not get either intervention. Now, a big deal was made that there was no placebo group. Everybody got therapy here, but there were 20 people that did allow them to do testing on them, and there was no change at all in their uh, QIDC score over the 12 weeks of the study. So you got a significant reduction in your depression score with both these therapies and in the in patients that didn't get any intervention and these were this is a group of people that actually also had lower degrees of disease there they had less depression if you looked at their scores no change over the time of the of this 12 weeks so that that to me even though it wasn't part of the protocol and we don't know we can't really characterize that group and it looks like it was somewhat different because they were less depressed uh there was no improvement in that population no drift into towards improvement with repeated testing for example um something that Matt brought up. So uh, I thought that was important. Uh, And on the placebo arm, um, uh, I didn't mention that in the study, but it it came up often in the discussion that there was no placebo arm in the study. I think uh, Raj mentioned in the Twitter chat that they did have placebo in the original design, but the funding body said that if you have a study where you have patients diagnosed with depression, it would be unethical to not give them some treatment. But if you look at the previously published CAST study, which looked at sertraline in a CKD population, they had a placebo arm there. Mm-hmm. The other thing they could have done is had a third arm, which was CBT and sertraline, although where the combination of the two could have been a third uh, intervention. Absolutely. Kevin Fowler mentioned that that's the gold standard. I, didn't, I haven't seen the data about that, but uh, a CBT plus sertraline arm would be cool. You know, it was, it was interesting looking at, uh, uh, kind of trying to familiarize myself with these treatments for depression. Like, it's generally conceded that CBT is equal to these drugs, right? These are considered to be equal therapies. And I almost wonder, you know, maybe this should have just been a non-inferiority design. Do we just Can we just confirm that these two therapies are the same in dialysis as they are the same in non-dialysis population? So when it comes to non-inferiority design, then you would have to say, hey, what's the margin? How much is acceptable? The typical sample size calculations would probably go up to 
many hundreds, if not oh, a really? thousand. Um, and if you have a standard deviation, then you would probably end up with a study that said, hey, I can't rule out non-inferiority. Or, so you need far more power for a non-inferiority study. And the other thing is, you know, I think CBT would only be effective if there was a really strong trust relationship between the patient and the person on the other end. And that's something that, you know, is a little bit more difficult to control for, whereas you know, sertraline is a pill that you administer. And so with CBT, there's like so much more variability. Different people, you know, not only in their ability to perform CBT, but also how they interact with the individual would make it a challenge. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing that Raj made a point of is that the median dose was 150 milligrams. So he said that in practice, most people underdose sertraline and they pushed up the doses until the patients had adverse effects. So that's, I thought, a useful, you know, if, if we are going to go down that path, I'm still uncomfortable, honestly, prescribing uh, antidepressants. Uh, but if we... Have we got onto the adverse effects? Yeah, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about that briefly. You know, these are powerful drugs. They seem to have uh, increased uh, adverse effects with sertraline. There was a balance uh, in the serious adverse effects, ones that required hospitalizations, but things that cause uh, somatic complaints, uh, there seemed to be a bal- an increased risk of those with uh, nervous system side effects and other side effects. I just was looking for the tweet. Uh, Raj did say, we, were, we asked him what the others were, and he said most of the events or symptoms were uh, like nausea, dizziness, palpitations, etc. So, you know, nothing... Not not something that one would call a serious adverse event. And drugs that differ that if well, you had both therapies, you could decrease the dose of sertraline potentially and not have the adverse effects. Absolutely. And also, also the pill burden of these individuals that are on dialysis is already high. So I think it is a, it is a challenge to look at a patient who's already struggling, going through a lot on a lot of different medications to say, here's another one that also has a lot of side effects. So I think one of the positives from the study that, as we had alluded to earlier, is that cognitive behavioral therapy, although did not perform as well, it still seems to have performed in a manner that's comparable. With a caveat, there's no placebo. Well, the other and the other question um, is how durable these two t- treatments are. Like being able to continue a medicine, probably easier to do than to continue uh, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, in the dialysis unit. In terms of preventing relapse, uh, it may be more effective with the pill. I don't, you know, again, that's all just speculation. It was not tested in the study. It was one of the things that was brought up, I believe, in the uh, discussion section. If I could say a couple of things, uh, we, we did push him. Uh, we did push Raj, Raj about the fact that there was a difference between CAST and uh, this trial. And CAST had more patients, right? They had about 200 odd patients. Um, he pointed out that even in the control arm, which were on the placebo in CAST, there was a lot of patient contact um, with the research team, you know? So people were talking to them, they were uh, doing all these scales and his point was that maybe, you know, it wasn't CBT, but the contact is different than just leaving patients alone. Uh, So maybe there was an effect from that, uh, apart from the fact that perhaps the dose was uh, different. Uh, I I personally think that, you know, the the run-in phase and and setting patients up and choosing them carefully also played a role, Um, you know, making them do these scales and and how the therapy was given. So all those factors may have played a role uh, more than um, just the intervention. Jenny, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, so a lot of great points were raised. Uh, one final thing, uh, I've been trying to comb through the basic science literature to see, you know, if there have been experiments done on uremic rats and, and looking at serotonin up, 
uptake and serotonin turnover. Um, And I found one paper from 1977 looking at serotonin turnover rates in uh, rats that had undergone nephrectomy. And there is a higher serotonin turnover, which would be consistent with depression. So the choice of an SSRI inhibitor may make sense you know, physiologically. Uh, I'm not a neurobiologist, I, uh, but thinking about just the physiology and brain physiology um, and, you know, psychopharmacotherapy, it would make sense. Um, but again, I really liked your comment swap about how maybe instead of fussing over KT or V or FOSS <laughs> clearance, we should be um, looking at these, looking at depression in our patients. Matt, any thoughts? Yeah, I think I want to reiterate one of the comments that was made in the chat. And and I think as we just alluded to that depression is something that we need to really think about, not only in patients that are on dialysis, but throughout all aspects of their kidney health. For instance, there was discussion about in transplantation patients that even though you might expect for them to be having a good outcome because things seem to be going okay, oftentimes they might actually be going through a difficult time. So I think it's always important for us to take a step back and and recognize that depression is very, very common. And that's something we need to uh, consider in all the patients that we see. For me, I think the big take home from this was uh, after reading the CAS trial, like I was like convinced, oh man, this depression is a real big problem in my patients and well, let's see what we can do with them. Oh, the medicines that we use don't work. And I thought that was really depressing. And I was felt much better after reading the ASCEND trial saying, actually, the two standard therapies that we have for major depression, the SSRIs and the cognitive behavioral therapy both were effective in dialysis patients. And I thought that was a really optimistic, hey, we got this horrible disease and the tools that we have to fight it do work here. And one doesn't seem to be better than the other. I think this is a real positive finding in a negative trial. Okay, I, I appreciate all the clapping and applause that we have at the end of that. That was excellent. Okay, so that's a, that's a wrap up of Ascend. Um, this is our first week back from uh, KidneyCon. We just uh, we had this great conference down in Little Rock. Uh, all of us were there. I think we all had a great time. Jenny, why don't, what would you love about being at KidneyCon? Oh, man, Joel. If only I had been there, right? <laughs> now, I was busy moving my lab, unfortunately, but I felt like I was there in spirit, Uh uh, reading all of the live tweeting, which was fabulous by the entire NSMC crew and also by the faculty. So it was really great. Um, and I felt like I was able to keep up, but I think there were some hands-on parts that I definitely had a lot of hashtag FOMO for missing. Swap, you had, a, you had an angle on, uh, on uh, KidneyCon that you were talking about with me earlier. What were you saying? So, absolutely. I mean, I, I helped organize the hypertension session, which was fabulous. You know, I, I, I got speakers that I liked, you know, Matt, Jordy, Steve Koka, and, and the debate between Tara Chang and Scott Brimble, which is fantastic. You know, people... It was it was the best medical debate I've ever seen. It was absolutely amazing. And it was yeah. recorded, I mean, and we will have it for a small fee. Actually, it's free. Fantastic! That I really That's look forward. Fee. Yeah, I, 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 we will be paying people to watch it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, so many people spontaneously came up and said that was the best debate, and I had the same feeling. You know, it, it was really you know the right mix of humor and so substance us, how does it and feel knowledge. The organizer of the of this of your session to sit there and watch it. What does that feel like? 
I I felt very proud. It's like being a parent, right? And and seeing your, you know, the ideas that you had come to fruition and and exceed your ex- wildest expectations. Um, so it was fantastic. That's exactly how I uh, felt for the whole conference. I'll think. You know, I, I want just want to go back to the debate. The debate was on. Uh, uh, was target blood pressure? Is that what it yeah, target blood was? pressure in non-dialysis CKD should be less than 120. And Tara Chang from Stanford argued for the proposition and Scott Brimble from McMaster argued against the proposition. And what it ended up boiling down to in the debate was a detailed review of SPRINT, especially on the subpopulation that had CKD. And uh, Dr. Chang just did a, an amazing job of summarizing why SPRINT is such an important trial and how it was done and how it was executed and really skewered a lot of the criticism that was very loud about SPRINT. Um, and then uh, and then Scott, and I was totally convinced, and then Scott got up there and pointed out how uh, as great a trial as it was, it may not apply to his patients. And that was also extremely well done. Uh, and both of them had humor and humility and really well-designed slides. And it was just a pleasure to watch. Although I will say that following it from afar on Twitter, <laughs> I thought that um, Scott actually, didn't he concede that she was the winner or something? They or both he, conceded that each other, that they were it was the, Yeah. Which was ah, part, which okay. was, and I think that's an important part of it is that when you go to these debates and they actually like each other and that they are respect each other's position, it comes across much better. It comes across much more collegial. Mm-hmm. When they're really out for blood, mm-hmm. you know, when <laughs> they're not nearly as fun. Exactly. And, and it's all of they are out for the blood and during the talk, but it's for pretend, right? It's for fun. So so it's, it becomes easier to accept. And, and both are, you know, especially Scott was so self-deprecating, right? He was making fun of himself with, you know, he had three papers in hypertension and Tara had 56. <laughs> Which went up to 58 in the two days that he checked. And one of one of uh, Scott's three papers is in the in a Polish journal as an invited Invited or something. Anyway, so so again, moving on. So there were many other sessions, right? The AKI session, um, you know, the pediatric session was surprisingly, you know, again, I don't see these patients, but it came across very well. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, But but the highlight, I think, you know, the reason why I'm going to tell all my fellows to go next year is the workshops you know i attended the workshops for the first time the last time you know i was conducting a workshop so i couldn't make it the asset-based workshop which i'll come back to again uh, but i also attended the professional development workshop run by i think organized by manisha and silvisha was just fantastic you know i wish i had done that workshop 10 years ago uh, and pathology right arcana labs is so unique it's uh you know they do what a hundred biopsies a day, something like that. They have this amazing treasure trove of biopsies. So that's that's a unique experience, which I don't think fellows will. Well, and one of the get. things about Arcana that I think when you hear, oh, they do a hundred biopsies a day, it makes it sound like a uh, a factory uh, assembly line. But they have a real academic spirit, right? They have a nephro- nephropath fellowship program that they do, and they develop their own stains, and they publish a lot. Like it's not just a commercial enterprise just trying to crank out the biopsies. They have a real they have a real academic spirit and i think they're as they're contributors and not just uh consumers absolutely um and there's the interventional nephrology uh, workshop a biopsy workshop uh and then coming back to the acid-based workshop which is a lot of fun uh it was it had the right combination of fun and uh 
you know, an education, going through those cases, having that discussion. Uh, I, I think I learned a lot, uh, you know, apart from the tasting, I know Ringer's is the gross. Is gross. Uh, it is. And, 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 you know, with all the discussion is. about LR and balance solutions, I was expecting it to be really nice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like to taste hey. balanced, right? Yeah, balanced like, flavors. Uh, close to New Year with a little LR. Like, absolutely hey, you know what not. you should do? You should make Robbie do a blind tasting next year. How about that? Can he identify the the solution? Yeah, I, I don't think you would have any trouble. There's no like uh, these are really distinct flavors. We tasted uh, LR, which is gross. We tasted normal saline, which is like uh, soup, soupy, salty. We did three uh, percent saline, which uh, you take a mouthful of that and you just brought back to your childhood, and you're at the beach again. Kikuman. <laughs> no, it's not nearly. Kikuman is twenty seven percent sodium chloride. This is three uh, percent. So it's the light version. <laughs> So the green, the, the green, green, the green is that top. What it is? Okay. <laughs> and then, uh, and then D5W. Yeah. This sounds like the when when you do grand rounds at Northwestern, you go out with Jenny. This is the Arkansas version of that. <laughs> with Joel. Let's try some D5. <laughs> hey, hold on now. This is, like, this, this is like getting taken out to the back alley of the restaurant. <laughs> For the Joel Top special <laughs> tasting from a very different type of tasting menu. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and then, but we didn't we didn't stop there because uh, uh, Roger had a great case of SIADH, and so we had everybody try uh, Urina. Urina how, do, how do you pronounce that product? Urina. 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 And so we had uh, 15 grams of uh, uh, urea, uh, and that was excellent. And then, uh, and then we had a case of uh, hypokalemia, and to try to simulate what it felt like to have hypokalemia, everybody got to try Lokelma, which is um, sodium cyclosilicate. No, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate. Uh, we got a we got a dose of that, and so a little, little chalky. Yeah, but the idea was uh, was you got you got to you could with a straight face say, hey, I've tried this, and it's not bad, right? It's a little chalky, but it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. KXLate is much worse, yeah, I have to say. We didn't have that. Next year. Tell them not to swallow, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I filled up the, what is it called? Lokelma? Lokelma. 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 And I, I asked Roger, and I was like, do I have to mix the entire thing? He said, you most definitely do. <laughs> and I said, okay, all right. It's like, do I have to actually consume the whole thing? He said, you definitely do not. Just a small taste. So I did taste it right before lunch, made sure and had a banana. Um, let me give my take on on the several-day excursion to Little Rock and Kidney Con. What do I tell people about Kidney Con? So the kid, Kidney Con is basically a way for people that are really passionate about the field of nephrology to all come together and do something special. It's built upon uh, hands-on workshops because it's not just about sitting in a lecture, but it's about hands-on participation. So that's why every participant will be able to participate in two different workshops, which we've already described many of them. It's also built upon mentoring, and we break everyone into groups and so they can talk and get to know each other. And then it's about inspiring the next generation of nephrologists. So trainees are definitely welcome, and that's really what we want to build is uh, fellows from around the country come to KidneyCon. So the keynote address, I think, was spot on, and that was um, by Michelle Rowe, a pediatric nephrologist from University of Minnesota, and really just highlighted uh, her path in medicine. 
Yeah, one of the one of the things that was so great about Michelle's talk is you're so you meet her and she's got everything going on and you're just like, wow, she's she this is a woman who's always known what she wanted and how to get there. And then when you hear her story, what you see is uh, a career that's had roadblocks and times when she's had to put it in reverse and drive back and take another turn and go a different way. And uh, she's had some real lows and uh, uh, she, she's gotten here through a lot of grit. And it was an, it was just, it was, it was a really great story. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was blown away by that. So really happy to, how how much of the story did you know before you invited her? Probably, I would say just uh, just a small bit. I didn't. Uh, I knew that she you know, she was an inspiring individual, someone that you know has joined our group and and is very passionate about the things that she cares about. Diversity is a key thing. Getting pediatric voice in in the adult world is also so. I, I knew she was really into Alport syndrome, and she really likes to make sure you say it right. Other aspects of the weekend that that was that we that were really fun uh, was the excitement from the trainees, and that really culminated in the Jeopardy competition on Friday evening. That was put together by Samira Farouk, and it was really cool because she uh, combed the internet and all the free online or the free open access education, and all the categories were just about all all the different ways you can learn for free. So GlomCon, Neff Madness. Um, your analysis pictures from um, Juan Carlos, Juan Carlos yeah. Velez, and and so the you know the trainees not only were were you know kind of debating and, and answering questions about about different you know aspects of nephrology, but also learning about different opportunities to get involved in education. And that's really a that's where we where we are in, in the field right now is that you don't have to have a long career to finally make it and and be able to write a review article. You can do that now on Renal Fellow Network. You can do that now by participating in GlomCon. You can do that now by getting on and just and chatting on NFJC. So that was really the point is to highlight what's available and then all the trainees having a great time and uh, interacting with each other. And that's always really a big highlight for me. Yeah, and Samira also organized the, uh, the bowling uh, on the first night, which was awesome. Totally. Yeah, that was uh, a 70s theme bowling alley that none of us had actually been to, even though I went to Arkansas just like two months ago. I was too busy and wasn't able to actually go check it out. But we went there and it was a cool place. Um, we all, it turns out, we're not great bowlers. Um, but we had a great time, and that's the that's the key. Uh, so, I think bowling will make a repeat appearance for sure. Yeah, it was that was a lot of fun. It was a great night. And then uh, the other thing that was fun was the uh, the social media talk on Saturday morning. Because talk talk about rising to the occasion, right? Like this this was thrown together at the last minute. It didn't even make the official program. Hashtags and hash browns. I mean, perfect uh, discussion about how to get involved in social media. And that was by Sri Lanka and uh, Sena, uh, two fellows, one from UCSF, the other from Baylor, who are both actually graduates of our program, uh, the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship. And they, and it was actually, I think it was live streamed by Kevin Fowler, who was also in attendance. And just talk about like, just a smattering of different hashtags that are popular, how to get involved. And so I thought that was a good way to, to kick off the, the Saturday scientific sessions, which included the hypertension session that Swapnil uh, helped to arrange. Uh, there was a predicting outcomes in AKI that was um, arranged by uh, 
uh, John Arthur, um, then moved to a lunch, and then Michelle Rowe came back again and and just hit it out of the park a second time with a, a um, pediatric session that uh, we tried to interface with like with the adult world as well. And then well, Carla Nestor, who did uh, the complement uh, mediated disease at that, was she's awesome. That was really good. I mean, you know, I've been to a bunch of compliment lectures, and that one was really good. And Dave Sass on uh, on pediatric kidney stones was also that was fascinating. Like I, you could you you couldn't have filled a, t- a, t- a thimble with what I knew about pediatric kidney stones. I really had nothing no nothing on that, and it was really right. really interesting. It was really good. Yeah. Um, then the last session was clinical research session, which featured uh, several really outstanding talks. The first one was a fellow case report that won the competition and. That was on SGLT2 in, inhibitors. That was uh, Katie Wong and talking about euglycemic um, hyperosmolar state. Um, and then several really great talks. And I think one of the ones that just set up the whole Credence study was Joel talking about SGLT2 inhibitors and sort of getting everyone hyped up for what was getting ready to happen the next day. And that was perfectly planned. I don't even know how we really thought it. We didn't really think about that. It just sort of happened, right? Yeah, that was, it worked out well. well. Um, so great right, job. We didn't know Credence was going to come we the day after. We knew it was, but yeah, totally. The, and then to, tap, to top the whole weekend off was a party at John Arthur's house, which he has termed uh, meatballs, martinis, and mentor. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, well, yeah, not exactly in that order. And everyone comes to his house and just has a good time and just reminisces on the weekend and talks about all the highs of the of the week. And so um, really an amazing time. You, you had to be there to see Matt in the chair and all these uh, trainees around him kissing the ring. Oh. It was like the Godfather. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> were they, were they hand feeding him meatballs? Yeah, they were, they were peeling grapes and then feeding to him. Feeding them to him. <laughs> And Joel and I were sitting down on the floor. <laughs> on the other hand, while while yeah. Matt is on this throne. Yeah, that's all right. Right. That's right. But you know, it's a great time. We really want to build this, get everyone there, and I, I think you should have a workshop on uh, on podcasting next year, and you should bring in some of the some of the core uh, medical podcasters to talk about their craft. That'd be cool. That would be interesting. A podcasting session yeah 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 the the uh, the hospitalis or sorry there was an internal medicine conference right where uh, core i am and yeah, the there's a small organization called the american college of physicians i'm not sure if you're familiar with it <laughs> oh sorry american okay. yeah, canadian exactly yeah great time uh really loved it if you know it's just been a few days or a week or so but still uh still in withdrawal from the kidney con experience. Uh, I do need to give a shout out though to the organizers. So John Arthur is the chief of nephrology at University of Arkansas, and he's the director of uh, kidney con. Uh, the co-director is Sri Sharma, who is a nephropathologist at uh, Arcana. Kelly Bullock uh, basically runs the show. She's the behind the scenes person that makes sure everything works smoothly. And then we have a new addition to the team. That's Samira Farouk, who is the new director of mentoring and training engagement. As you can see, we really want to make this 
um, you know, for trainees to come and enjoy and learn science. So we're really excited to have Samira join the team. And obviously I'm involved as the, I think, director of education is what it's called. Um, but basically my job is uh, to get people there and, and, you know, and try to get this uh, going. So if y'all, if you know individuals you want to hear speak, let me know. Um, and we'll, we'll do our best to bring them here. And I definitely appreciate everyone in the Nephrology Social Media Collective. I mean, that really is an organization that makes it run. That is our official in-person meeting. Interns that came, really thank you to, for taking time to come. All the faculty that, that, that showed up. And really, if you look at it, probably, really, if you look at it, probably half of the talks um, and workshops are being done. Um, organized by members of the Nephrology Social Media Collective. So definitely we couldn't do it without them. So uh, thank you guys. Thanks everybody for listening to the first edition of Freely Filtered, a NefJC podcast. This is our second podcast, but the first one that's a freely filtered one. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Credence. Till then, wash those potassiums. Yeah, get on those SGLT2 inhibitors. What, don't you love your patients? Please stop Stop the the baclofen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, all right. Good night, everybody.